to the bulletin, pull out the insert. Uh, if you're visiting with us today or you're online with us for the first time, you can get this from the website. But we always have a sermon outline where you can use it to fill in the blanks and kind of follow along. All the major scriptures we're going to be looking at as well as the major text are found on that page. And then if you turn it over, we have what we call the MPG. MPG stands for Memorize and Pray and Glorify. And it's a way, the way that MPG kind of helps you take your car further down the road. Our MPG helps you take the Word of God a little bit further down the road by giving you something to memorize, uh, a prayer to pray as it pertains to the things we're going to be talking about this morning out of this text, out of 1 Corinthians 6, as well as an activity or some questions that will allow you to use what we're talking about today to be a way day-to-day that you can glorify God. Now, we are going to uh, start with this statement from Rita Mae Brown. And the statement is... The price of dishonesty is self-destruction. The price of dishonesty is self-destruction. I think that's true, and that's why truth is such an important thing for us to embrace and to know and to figure out. Jesus says in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 31, If you hold to my teaching... So it's not just any truth that he's talking about. He's talking about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, following his word, following his will, his teaching. He says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And in being my disciple and holding to my teaching, then you will know the, what, church? Truth. And the truth is going to set you free. Now, we live in a world where there's a lot of truth being tossed about. And not all of it is the kind that is going to set you free. That is why it's really important that we think about what the truth of the kingdom of God, of the gospel, what we find in God's word really says and how it works itself out in everyday life. Because there is this malevolent force in the world called the devil. And Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, says, give no opportunity to the devil. Now, what we've already considered in this sermon series on truth and knowing the truth about things is not knowing the truth can create a lot of opportunity for catastrophe to take place in your life. I mean, all of us have realized at some point or another that something that we believe to be true actually really wasn't all that true. In fact, it was actually kind of dangerous to follow that that, uh, that word or that, that piece of advice. It really wasn't truth in, in a way that would bless us. And we've already looked in this series about the truth about treasure. And there's a lot of things that are said about money and about treasure. And if you don't know the true value of treasure or what true treasure really is, it can get you deep, deep, deep into trouble. And the same with words. Words are all over the place. And everybody has an opinion about how to use words, right? But if we don't know God's truth about words, then our mouths can get us into deep, deep, deep trouble. Now, the same is true about our bodies. Not knowing the truth about our bodies as created by God can get us into deep, deep trouble. One of the very first lessons in the Bible involves our bodies. And that lesson is this. Our physical bodies were created by God. As God created the heavens and the earth and everything in between, God also spoke into existence human beings and gave them bodies. Bodies are good because they've been created by God, and they have a purpose because they were created by God. And simply put, the body 
matters. Say that with me. The body matters. Let's say it one more time, but with some gusto in those outdoor voices, right? The body matters. In our text, Paul writes to brothers and sisters in Corinth. Our brothers and sisters in, um, you know, 2,000 years ago, he writes these words, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20. You honor, your God, you honor God with your bodies. The body matters. And one of the reasons the body matters is not only did God give you a body and create that body and have a will for that body, but we use our body to honor God. Now, if you've been around for a while and have read the Bible maybe a couple of times or are familiar at least with some of the stories, out of all of the stories in the Bible, what are some of the most famous you know, Jesus walking on water, right? David and Goliath. How about this one? David and Bathsheba. 2 Samuel chapter 11, chapter 12. The story of David and Bathsheba. David, David is king of Israel. He's sort of at a midlife point in his life. And it's the springtime we read at the very beginning of chapter 11. And while everybody else is going out to war, David the king stays home in Jerusalem. And he is maybe going through some kind of a midlife point in his life. We read that it's in the evening and David is just now getting out of bed. And he goes up onto the top of his palace one evening and he sees a woman bathing on the rooftop of an adjacent building. And, you know, David, you know, doesn't turn away from that and say, you know, that's the most you know, ridiculous thing I've ever seen in my life. David sees... Bathsheba and you know he begins to get fixed on her and he wants to inquire about her and servants come back and they tell David a couple of things they say David um, she's somebody's daughter she's the daughter of one of your good friends and not only that she's a wife and not only a wife but she's also the wife of one of your most trusted colleagues one of your most trusted inner circle members She's the wife of Uriah. But David doesn't listen to a lot of that. And he goes ahead with the plans of his heart. And he has an adulterous affair with her. That adultery leads to pregnancy. Pregnancy leads to the death, murder really, of her husband Uriah. And the bottom line is that David's house is never ever going to be the same. It's never going to be the same. It's, it's, it's tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy. And one of the points of the story is that when we don't honor God with our bodies, then it can lead to a lot of misery and to a lot of heartache. So before we get into this sermon very far, I, I do want to say three things as, as kind of a preamble to some of the things I'm going to be talking about this morning. Uh, let's talk about those of us who have made some, some mistakes in our past when it comes to our bodies and sexuality. I would say that um, remember that God's grace is an incredible thing and that we are all broken at some point and we all sin and fall short of the glory of God, one of the really big truths of the Bible. And that because of God's grace and all of us being recipients of that grace, regardless of the kinds of places and kinds of things where we mess up, we are brought 
into God's presence, love, and forgiveness through His grace. That's for those who have messed up in the past. Well, right now, in a church this size, there are going to be those that are messing up in the present. Are messing up right, right now when it comes with, you know, to their body and what they're fixing their gaze upon. And, and I would just say to you, grace. Grace is not only what is, what is going to save us, but it's grace that even in the moment where we realize that we have gone down a path that is leading us astray, that's leading us to self-destruction, that, that we have believed as a truth something that was really, really false, and it's leading us to a path of self-destruction, that it's God's grace that makes being able to turn around and to do something different. I mean, we, t- we spent eight weeks talking about God's grace and how beautiful it is. It is God's grace that is inserted into the world as this beauty, and it's God's grace That when you see in the present that you're messing up in an area like this, that is going to allow you that beauty, that real beauty of heaven, of God's presence, that is going to enable you to see Him and to turn to Him and to proceed toward Him. And then there's the future. Some are going to mess up really big and going to make some, some of us are going to make some really big mistakes in the future. And I just want to say one word to you, to have in your heart and to have in your mind, and that is grace. It is God's grace that will always be the magnet to attract you back into His His embrace and into His presence. And, and, And we all, regardless of the sin, the particular sin that we may be guilty of. It is God's grace that shapes our lives and shapes our future. And knowing that about the future is what shapes our lives today in the present. Now, in the text, do we got that's clear, right? You can say amen. I mean, it's God's grace. And as we talk about this, it's going to be about God's grace and God's beauty. Amen? In the text from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul's going to give us two things to know about the body. The price of wrong concepts, concepts plural, and the beautiful hope of the right concept, singular. So let's begin with the high price of wrong concepts. Now, let's step out just for a second of the realm of human sexuality. Have you ever considered just how confused people can be when it comes to food. How confusing our approach to food, eating food, taking in food can be. Basically, there are three approaches to food. The first is starvation. Basically, we're going, you know, I need to lose a couple of pounds, and the best way to do that is to go a week without eating. How many of you have tried that? Don't raise your hand. It's not the healthiest way to approach eating, right? It's not a healthy way to lose weight. The second one is fast food. Now, you're driving down the street, and all of a sudden you realize that, you know, I'm kind of hungry. I could, uh, you know, I could use something to eat right now. You know, I can skip breakfast. You know, I'm kind of hungry right now. And then all of a sudden you see those golden arches. And typically, you would not give those golden arches a second glance. But right now, you're driving down the street, and you realize, you know, I haven't eaten anything all day. Man, those French fries, those French fries look pretty good. 
And what is that sandwich that begins with a mac and ends with a rib? The mac rib. Now you're talking. The mac rib sandwich. And then a Diet Coke to go with those french fries and a mac rib sandwich, right? And you wouldn't even give the golden arches a second thought. But right now you're hungry. You don't have a lot of time. It's about fast food and it's really, really convenient. And you're hungry. So you stop in and you get it. It's not the healthiest food in the world to eat. But then there's the healthy food. The healthy food is about eating good. One of, you're not going to believe this, but we have a guru in our church when it comes, in fact, this woman has given me this terminology. Juan uh, uh, Suncolum is, she is the, the most uh, impressive person when it comes to understanding a healthy lifestyle, especially with eating. And, and years ago, she spent a lot of time with me talking about the food I was eating and what was good and what was not so good. And she used this terminology about eating good, clean food that leads to the flourishing and the health of the body. In other words, eat good and feel good. Now, these three ways are also representative of the way that a lot of people in the world that we live in think conceptually about human sexuality. And we read all three of them in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7. The first is the starvation view. And Paul writes, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is well for a woman not to touch, is well for a man not to touch a woman. Now again, um, this is what we might call the starvation view. It's one view, and we're not going to spend a lot of time here. Uh, it's one view that was in Corinth during this period of time that, that sex was not a good thing, that it was defiling, that it was unholy that a person should never talk about it, a person should never think about it, that a person should abstain except for procreation, that sex is bad, and this is part of that Greek uh, Corinthian view of the world 2,000 years ago, but the sex is a bad thing because the physical body is a bad thing. But we know that the body matters because God created it, right? So this is not a biblical view. I repeat, this is not a biblical view. Now, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time here. We'll spend more time talking about the fast food view. And what I'm going to give you here is kind of the, the crux of what the Corinthian Christians are thinking about this area. They say, I have the right to do anything. Paul kind of responds. And then he says, I have the right to do anything. And Paul so responds. And then, you know, sort of the third thing that they say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. Paul is responding to the Corinthian view that believes that sex is just an appetite. That there's nothing really going on that's spiritual. That it's just the body. It's just an appetite. And when you're hungry, you feed it. I have the right to feed that appetite. It, it's no big deal. It's natural. It's not important because in the end, it just doesn't last. God's going to destroy it. And to that way of thinking, Paul writes very clearly and distinctly and without hesitation. The very next slide, please. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. It's clear. The body that matters because God made it matters. It's not bad. It's good. It has purpose, and it is a way that we can honor God. 
And the word that Paul uses in verse 13 means a sexual relationship with anyone you're not married to. The word that he's using in verse 13 means a sexual relationship with anyone you're not married to. It's an extramarital sex relationship. It's, it's sexual outside, a sexual relationship outside of vows. In fact, one of the old famous German dictionaries, uh, a theological dictionary of the New Testament, you know, there's like a thousand volumes, uh, defines the word pornea, that is the word that is used here, as the Greek view of life which regards sexual intercourse as just natural, necessary, and as justifiable as eating and drinking. But Paul says in verse 16, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. Now what is he saying here? By one flesh, Paul is is referencing how Moses describes marriage in Genesis chapter 2. When Moses, in talking about Adam and Eve coming together, starting the first family, says, A man shall leave his mother and father and be united to his wife, and the two shall what? Become one flesh, right? So we know where that's coming from. By one flesh, Paul is referencing how Moses describes marriage in Genesis. But one flesh means more than just blood and muscle and bones and tissue. One flesh means more than just a mere physical biological act. One flesh describes what happens in in marriage that's emotional and intellectual and spiritual, uh, personal, vulnerable, those emotional components of our being united with another person through physical union. Paul says that there's more to human sexuality than a biological act that happens between two bodies. Something completely different and more going on. Paul says that this very thing that makes sex a wonderful blessing in marriage is the very thing that makes it a disaster outside of marriage. Just ask David. Wall Street Journal, about two months ago, August 20th, 21st of this, this, this year, the weekend edition, had an article entitled, How the Sexual Revolution Has Hurt Women. And it states in the article that in the sociosexual world of hookups, that women are more likely than men to experience regret and, so self, and low self-esteem and mental distress. There is a price, my friends. There is a price, my friends, for embracing a false narrative about romantic love. There cannot be the intimacy, there cannot be the closeness, there cannot be the oneness that is God's design for marriage when people are turned into commodities. That is just a body. And it's just feeding an appetite. You know, the, the word love has so many different ways that it gets used today. And there are a lot of really toxic narratives about love. One of them is, you know, I love you for what I can get out of you. I love you for what I get out of you. I love you because you are a commodity that meets a need. Or we say something like, I love you to this point, but no further. 
that my love has some kind of limitation on it. You know, a, a recent book in 2018, Mark Regneris, in his book, uh, Cheap Sex, writes this. Technology is increasingly separating sex from love, from fertility, and from meaningful human connection. And the human society that results will be relationally less pleasant and lonelier. And, and the data is backing this up. Not just Christian scientists, social scientists, but secular social scientists as, as well. These technologies drive the cost of sex down and make real commitment more expensive and challenging to navigate, having created a massive slowdown in the development of long-term relationships, especially marriage, puts women's fertility at risk, uh, driving up demand for infertility treatments and have taken a toll on men's marriage ability. A national survey of men and women between the ages of 18 and 60 report, and these are folks who have had multiple sexual partners, they are twice as likely to be divorced, three times as likely to have cheated while married, substantially less happy with life, twice as likely to report having had an abortion, more likely to be on medication for depression, three times more likely to have had an STD. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. You know the really funny thing about the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is talking about the same thing. He says, you know, you've heard that it was said that, you know, do not commit adultery. But if you even look upon a woman in your heart, lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her. And then towards the end of that section, he talks about, you know, if your right hand or your right eye, you know, causes you to sin, you know, cut it off or to pluck it out because it's better to lose, you know, a member of your body than for the whole body to be cast into hell. And he's not saying that that is something literal that you're supposed to do because Jesus has just said that it's something that's in your heart. What he's saying there is decisive action. He's saying decisive action. That's why he says, flee, in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Paul, Paul's saying the same thing in 1 Corinthians 6 that Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 5. Take decisive action. There's something going on here that is destructive. You have not believed the truth, God's truth, about the body and about human sexuality and the will of God and all these kinds of things. And you and those that you are with are paying a deep, deep price for a false narrative. As compelling, though, that the data to flee from a life marked by the wrong use of our bodies is, uh, to flee from a life that puts the sexual experience at the center or even the high point of what it means to be human, as bad as the immorality can be, Paul is saying there's a different reason, though, to follow God's Word. Paul offers a different kind of a concept. It's not using, but it's uniting. It's not using, but uniting, which brings us to the beautiful hope of the right concept. Now, earlier I mentioned three concepts relating to eating food and how they illustrate approaches to human sexuality. There's the starvation diet. I don't want any food. You know, I'm just, I need to lose some weight. I'm going to go without. Not very healthy. There's the fast food. It's convenient. It's quick. It's on the way. 
Why not? I'm hungry. I need to eat. And then number three, there is the healthy. Now, the first two, the starvation diet and the fast food diet, are really a low view when we think about them conceptually about human sexuality. They really are a low view of human sexuality. What Paul is going to do is offer a high view of human sexuality, which is the two becoming one flesh through marriage. He is not devaluing sex, but raising it up. It's not starvation, and it's not staying away from you know, the high fat and the high sodium foods, but it, it's learning to love the healthy foods. He is comparing oneness of marriage to oneness with the Lord. And he says, you know, if, if falling into the arms of your spouse is, is dynamite, then how much more so? I mean, just imagine what it will be like to fall into the arms, the embrace of God. And in two places, he says this. Uh, chapter 6, 16 and 17, whoever is united with the Lord is what? is one with Him in spirit. And then he says in verse 19, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Now, what, what Paul is saying here is incredibly radical, and it was radical in that Corinthian first century world, and it is radical in our 21st century Western world. What he is saying is that, is that the, the human sexuality that God has given us with our bodies is, is great. He's not devaluing it. He is raising it up within parameters. And what he is saying is that it is not just something that happens with your body. There is something much more that is going on. And it's like you being united with God. Now, now the question underneath all of this is is about singles. That, you know, there is a question. So what you're saying, what Paul is saying, is that unless you're married, you can't be fulfilled. And that is not at all what Paul is saying. But Paul is saying something incredibly radical and revolutionary when it comes to thinking about human sexuality. In these passages, Paul has lifted up human sexuality and, and marriage, but at the same time, he is saying that you can live without it. Whether married or single, what matters is the experience of being one with God. What matters is understanding that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit dwells in you. This is the, the ultimate fulfillment. I mean, think about what's happening in John chapter 4. Jesus goes to that well there near the village of Sychar in Samaria, and, and Jesus asks the woman at the well for uh, you know, a drink of water. Can, do you have a cup? Can I have a glass of water? And she says, uh, okay, but this is kind of weird. You're a man, I'm a woman, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. You know, we don't really interact. And Jesus gets into a conversation with her, and 
he knows ultimately what it is she's looking for. He, he starts talking about living water, the water that you can drink that, you know, it just comes up out of the center of you and it's just so satisfying. You'll never thirst again. And she doesn't really understand that he's talking about all things spiritual and the, and the fulfillment of, of what life in the kingdom of God and being a disciple of Jesus is all about. She says, give me this water. I'll, I'll take that all day long so I don't have to come back here with this bucket. And what's the very next thing that Jesus asks? Go call your husband. That seems weird. She's asking him for a drink of water now. And he says, go call your husband. It turns out that she has had a string of some really bad relationships with men. And the question is, why does Jesus turn to her romantic life when she's asking for living water? Because Jesus is saying that I can offer you something, that there is an offer from God in the kingdom of God that is, that is more fulfilling, that is ultimately fulfilling to you more than what you've been looking for with men. You know, many of us are married, and in our marriages, you know, Paul's talking about this in Ephesians 5. When, when people look at our, our marriages, people should get an idea of what the gospel is all about. They see the way that we talk to one another. They see the way, you know, the way that we, we, we are affectionate to one another. You know, they, they see something in the way the husband treats the wife, the way the wife, you know, responds to the husband. They should be able to see something about the way it is that Christ is with the church. And, and many of us are single. And what Paul is saying here is that, yes, you know, marriage is a great thing. But life in the kingdom of God gives you, gives your life, gives your soul the richest meaning by giving you a, a union with Christ, a union with God. Don't you know that the Holy Spirit lives in you the way that God's Spirit lived in the temple in Jerusalem? And many of us have made choices where um, our sexuality opened doors for pain and for hurt and heartache to enter into our lives. But in Christ, we find the grace and the forgiveness and the welcome that brings healing to our hearts. And all I would say to you this morning is this. So, your body and my body matters because God made them. And there is living within the kingdom of God and according to God's will, the creator and the Lord of our bodies, a way to find fulfillment and, and, and to find that, 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 that oneness with God that is, you know, it's not really ever adequately, adequately described. It is better caught than taught, but when you see it, you know it. And it makes the difference in the way that you go through life, knowing that there is that unity with God, God with you and you with God. And there is a way that we can live with our bodies that is outside of the kingdom of God. And being outside the kingdom of God, it is going to author in our lives and create in our lives all kinds, not just frustration, but pain and trouble 
and a lack of fulfillment and, and, and a way of doing life that is so far below what it is that God offers in the kingdom of God. And that's the truth. And the price of dishonesty can be self-destruction. Let's stand and praise God together.